Please turn back in your Bibles to uh, John chapter 1. And uh, our texts for this evening will be verses 35 to 42, entitled, Come and See. And perhaps as you're just turning back there, I just want to say that it has been a genuine joy uh, to be here at Forest Fold today. Thank you so much for uh, having us again. And uh, hopefully, I pray there will be other opportunities in the future to come and uh, preach and to share something more of our plans and how they are working out. Uh, But John chapter 1, verses 35 to 42, I want to speak to you tonight about when something goes viral. I recognise that at times like this, uh, during COVID, as it continues to, to spread across the globe, to speak of something going viral sounds like anything but a good thing. But generally, uh, going viral is more closely associated with being a huge success. It's the great aim of media advertisements and many individuals alike. Maybe they uh, will post a video on social media and somebody will like and share it and then another will pass it round until it has, uh, before long, circulated rapidly through so many networks of people that it has been said to have gone Viral. It's been seen not by one, a hundred, a thousand, but millions across the globe. Well, with that in mind, I'd like us to look at John chapter 1 and consider together this evening a case in which the gospel begins to go viral. I want us to pay attention to the, to the first few social networks as the good news is shared from John the Baptist to his two disciples who in turn carry it on to others. This is the virus, the the healthy virus that we now see spreading far and wide. But before we look at the gospel extending, we've got to consider the context, don't we? It won't come as much of a shock to learn that the writer of this fourth gospel is a man named John. And as he, now an old man in Ephesus at the time of his writing, puts pen to paper to record the life and the ministry of the one that he had come to know and love as his saviour, he doesn't write some kind of dramatic, loosely based narrative or fiction novel, but rather he writes as an eyewitness An eyewitness, he has already in his opening chapter detailed for us the way in which God has sent his son into the world. The word who was made flesh. He's gone on to say that he was with God in the beginning. That he is the light and the life of all mankind. That this is the long-awaited promised Messiah that Jeremiah, who we considered this morning, was looking forward to. And then having met the prophet John the Baptist, who has made it explicit that he is merely the one who prepares the way for the true king. Then as we move to verses 35 to 42, we're being taught how to be a disciple. How to be a disciple. The writer of this gospel wants us to know through the events that he had no doubt witnessed with his very own eyes how you and me in the 21st century can be followers of Jesus Christ 
That's the purpose of John's writing. In fact, he, he makes it so clear at the end of the gospel. These things are written so that you may believe and by believing may have life in his name. That's John's desire. That's his heart's longing that you and I would become believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that is the focus of this passage as well. In just seven short verses, we meet the very first disciples. The word disciple comes from the Latin uh, meaning learner or follower. And that is the pattern that we see displayed here in John chapter 1. People who learn about Christ and then follow after Christ. It is a passage that sets before us the lives of various men and how they came to know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want us to break this passage down into uh, three simple stages. Uh, Firstly, in verses 35 to 36, they listened. They listened in order to be uh, a true disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ. It demands that we first of all listen to the message declared. And the message that is recorded for us in verses 35 to 36 is really a repeat of what has already been spoken in verse 29. John the Baptist, the the forerunner of the Lord Jesus Christ, has, has raised his voice and he's pointed away from himself, saying, behold, the Lamb of God. That is his announcement. Here he is. It's not a figment of my imagination. This is not some kind of principle. This is not uh, some possibility. But but he's really here. Behold him. Or some versions put it simply as look the Lamb of God. So It's a really simple sermon. This is a a straightforward command. And the goal is, is so clear, isn't it? John the Baptist turns to the two men who had perhaps been following him for some time. And with total humility, he acknowledges to them that he himself is not the saviour of the world. John is not the answer to all of the world's problems. And there's no proud or possessive spirit within John the Baptist, is there? He doesn't say, well, you men are, are my disciples You're not going anywhere. They might follow him, but you're staying with me. No, no, the point and the goal of John's ministry was never to build an empire for himself. To gain a big platform or to pack out stadiums with adoring fans. That's not John's desire. And that's no preacher's desire either. And that should be no desire of yours, Christian believer, this evening. But rather John's aim, uh, as it should be for all who are in positions of authority within the church, to call the attention and the adoration of everyone who are part of the congregation to behold the Lamb, to see the superiority and the preeminence of Jesus Christ, who is the only hope for sinners like you and me. Jesus Christ is the whole point of the gospel. And that is who we point to. That's who John was pointing to. 
You remember how in Luke's gospel, in chapter 1 verse 17, how an angel of the Lord had appeared to Zechariah and Elizabeth. And, and much to their surprise, told them in their old age that they would bear a son. And he will go on before the Lord to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. That was what was prophesied or predicted before John had even entered into the world. And sure enough, John has grown from a boy to a man and he has fulfilled that promise. He's so focused on Jesus Christ. Wherever Jesus goes, John's eyes, you can imagine them following him. He's obsessed with Christ. And he's quick to stress that, that, that he is not the destination. But rather he is merely the signpost who points away to Christ. You know there's always a temptation that comes to those who are put in positions of authority to abuse it. It's why Uncle Ben said to Spider-Man, with great power comes great responsibility. But it's true, isn't it? That though many of us may have positions of power in a church or even in society, there's a great temptation to abuse that power. Many use it as a, as a means of, of gaining popularity with people. Many view positions of authority as, as merely a stepping stone to fame and fortune. And yet there's none of that in, in this man, John, is there? There's no, there's no pride in his position. He's just one man with one message. Behold the Lamb of God. Follow him. But then what does it mean when he calls Jesus the, the Lamb of God? Well, in other words, this is Jesus, who is fully God and fully man. And he has come into the world for the purpose of removing sin, not by sweeping it under the carpet, but by taking it upon himself as the full and final sacrifice. If you know your Old Testament, you'll know uh, that the act of sacrificing animals was an act of obedience. As the scriptures say, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. But you might be asking yourself, well, why a lamb? Why this innocent young animal? What has he done to deserve death? And if you're asking that question, then, then you've kind of got it. That's really the whole point. Because since the lamb did no wrong, they died in the place of the one performing the sacrifice, acting as a substitute to bring forgiveness of sin. And yet the animal sacrifices were merely uh, a shadow of the ultimate sacrifice of Jesus Christ who went to the cross like a lamb to the slaughter in the place of sinners. As a 21st century audience living in the UK, no longer under the old covenants, no longer worshipping according to Jewish ceremonies, the, the name that is given to describe the Lord Jesus Christ, it doesn't quite carry the connotation that it would have done for these two disciples in verses 35 to 36. Think what a moment that must have been for them as the penny drops and they finally realize what their teacher is telling them. 
This is the one who fulfills the ancient types and shadows. This is the one who was foretold in the books of Moses and throughout the prophecies. This is what mum and dad have been telling me for years and years, the children might have said. The wait is finally over and the Lamb of God is here. What a revelation that would have been. What, a, what an amazing thing. You can just imagine the scene, can't you? As these two men, they trace the direction in which John's finger is pointing and they see Jesus for the very first time. They, they behold this Lamb of God. He, he might not look all that impressive. As the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 53 predicted, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. And yet, rather than turning up their nose and scoffing like the Pharisees and the scribes and the teachers of the law would go on to do, there's something different in the response of these two disciples. The first of which is that they listen. They listen to the message, but then they do something more, something that you and I must do. Far more than our listening, they did something about it. And that's my second point. This is what I want us to see in verses 37 to 39. Secondly, they followed. They followed. It's one thing for you and I to hear the gospel. It's a very different thing to respond to it. How many times in our Bibles do we read the need to not only be hearers of the word only, but doers also. It's there in James chapter 1 verse 22. It's there in Romans 2.13. It's the reason that Jesus Christ told the parable of the wise and the foolish builders in Luke chapter 6. I, I've got to know some of you uh, over the, the four times that I've come here to Forest Fold. But I don't know uh, many of you and I don't know all of your backgrounds. But I'm sure that for most of you... That the gospel is news that you have heard more times than you can count. I know that Pastor John and the other men who stand up here to preach the gospel to you week by week. Do it with faithfulness and you have heard the message but the question still stands. Have you done something about it? Have you responded? Have you, have you actively gone to Jesus Christ as a, as a sinner to the Saviour? Many of you are, are so well acquainted with the commands and the call of scripture. But you're still waiting. I don't know what you're waiting for, only you can answer that. But the command is that you must go. You must follow, you must respond to the message that you have heard. It's not enough just to hear the name of Jesus Christ preached from the pulpit. It's not sufficient enough for us to read about him in books and to know theoretically that there is a saviour out there somewhere. But you've got to know him as your saviour. There's no good in having all the knowledge about theology and the great doctrines and yet to remain unresponsive and inactive. And yet John's disciples, you cannot deny they do not make that mistake. Verse 37, without a moment's hesitation, when the two men heard him say this, they followed Jesus. 
They do exactly as Jesus later goes on to instruct in Matthew 16 and Mark chapter 8 and Luke chapter 9. They deny themselves, they take up their cross and they follow him. They leave the world behind and they go after Jesus. This is not a complex passage in in some respects, is it? John is a simple message. Behold the Lamb of God and immediately they follow Jesus. I wonder how you would feel if you were to put yourselves in John's shoes as he watches his own following and ministry vanishing before his eyes. Some of us would be pretty disappointed, wouldn't we? But not John. I could just envisage him with a big smile upon his face. This is what he, as a preacher of the gospel, desires above all things. You see, for the Christian, there is nothing that brings us joy like that of seeing sinners come to the Saviour. There are a few things that make our hearts sing with praise more than to see one who, who used to walk according to the course of this world, now following after the God of heaven. Well then, having begun to follow, in verse 38, we read this amazing response of Christ himself. Jesus turned around. And here we have his first public words recorded in the Gospel of John. The very first words of his ministry in the form of a question. What do you seek? What do you seek? I wonder how people today might respond to such a question. What do you seek? It's a searching question. It's a simple question, but it it, it kind of digs down to the core of what we want in life. I'm sure if you went onto the streets and you asked uh, something similar, you might be met with some strange looks. If you just out of the blue ask somebody, what are you seeking? But if you were to really probe into what people are seeking today, many might say something like health or happiness or somebody to love. We're all in the pursuit of something or other. There is something that stands upon the stage of your heart. There is something that that you want above everything else. There is a perhaps an idol in your life that needs to be smashed to pieces. There's something that you and I are seeking after. Something that we're chasing. And yet as the early church father Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they rest in God. In other words, the only answer that will satisfy our longing hearts is found in the God who made us. If you're looking, friends, this evening for something to to fill the void in your life, something that you feel, if I just have that, it will make me satisfied. Friends, let me tell you from the authority of Scripture that it won't unless it's Jesus Christ. He's the only one. Who can not only save you, but also satisfy you. But take a look at the response of these men. It's a strange reply to such a question, isn't it? In fact, it seems like they've just kind of totally dodged the question. By answering with a question of their own here at the end of verse 38. Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Commentators are divided on... Uh, the reasons behind this uh, 
follow-up question. Some say that they're, they're trying to take the pressure off of themselves because they didn't want to give an honest personal answer. But I think it seems most likely that in asking for Christ's address, they're essentially looking for an invitation so that they might come to his home to talk things through. Rather than standing in the open air, they're, they're essentially saying, let's, let's meet together and let's sit and discuss this. But whatever the real reason, Jesus shows such patience towards them in his reply. He replies not with a command alone, but a command that is attached to a promise. Verse 39. Come and you will see. Come and see. Notice the the tenderness with which Jesus responds. This is a gentle exhortation. I was just speaking to a brother uh, this afternoon about how uh, the Lord is is sometimes portrayed to us as this this uh, wrathful, judgmental God who who just longs to damn everyone. It's not the God of the gospel, is it? Yes, God is a God of justice. Yes, God is angry with the wicked every day. But look at how Jesus speaks here. He's a God of gentleness. He's a God of love. Come and you will see. This is not the command of a strict and stern army officer. Shouting his orders to the soldiers to just get in line and follow the leader. No, he he warmly invites them to come. All the way through the Bible we encounter this wonderful gospel word. From the beginning of Genesis right through to the end of Revelation, God's word is is filled with the invitation, come. And so it is here, from the lips of Jesus Christ himself. You could say on one level he's offering a, a pretty obvious response, come and you will see where I'm staying. But I'm convinced that he it, it goes deeper. And that Jesus is saying essentially that if you come to me, you will see spiritually. You'll have spiritual vision. And friends, that's the, that's the call of the gospel on you and me today. We must leave the world behind. We must turn our back upon our old ways. And we must come if we're truly to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, and it's not just a command for those who are unconverted, but for those who are converted, for those who perhaps have been believers for decades, we've got to keep on coming, don't we? Keep on coming to Jesus Christ every single day. And that is exactly what takes place in the second half of verse 39. Come and you will see, So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. What an unforgettable day uh, this must have been. What a, what a time well spent. Wouldn't you just love to know what kind of conversations were taking place in that home? What, what lessons would have been taught by the Lord Jesus Christ on that night as these two disciples sit at the feet of the teacher of all teachers? John even records the time of day that this meeting took place. It's why many believe that that John was actually one of these first two disciples, because the level of detail that is given seems to suggest that this was a day that this man never forgot. He could still remember. 
Some 70 years after the event, at the very end of his life, the very time in which he was introduced to Jesus Christ. Every part of this passage bears the marks of an eyewitness account. Well then finally, we follow the journey of these two disciples in verses 40 to 42. And this is where we've got to finish. The men have listened to the announcement to behold the Lamb. They have followed the Saviour. They have come and they have seen. But then we're given a glimpse into the effects of that meeting with Jesus Christ. Having followed him, look at what they go on to do lastly. They witnessed. They witnessed. Here is the external evidence for the internal change. These are the fruits that have grown from a life that is now rooted in Christ. They were not content to keep the message and the good news to themselves, but they were compelled to to go out and to share it. First of all, with their nearest and dearest. And having identified one of the disciples as Andrew, Now in verse 41, we see him rushing in to his brother with the news. We have found the Messiah. That's what he wants his his brother to know above all things. We found him. Can you just imagine a church that is full of Andrews? Can you imagine what a difference there would be in in our lives if we witnessed in such a way with such urgency? No sooner had this man become a disciple... Then he is right on his feet telling his own brother about his discovery. That is the picture of a true disciple. That is not nominal Christianity. You know, when somebody wears a name tag and they they profess with their mouth that they're a believer in Jesus Christ, but you kind of look at their life and you think there's no way. There's a total disconnect between what they say and how they live. But no, this is, this is the real deal, isn't it? This is a great model for discipleship. Andrew has not casually wandered home and mentioned in passing to his brother Simon, oh, by the way, I met this pretty interesting teacher today. If you ever get a chance, maybe we can pencil in a, a date to go and meet him. Maybe set up a schedule. No. Look at the urgency of verses 41 to 42. What a revelation. What good news, the one who was promised to our forefathers, he is here and he is near. All of those centuries of waiting and finally at last we have found the Messiah. Can't you imagine Andrew kind of exploding with enthusiasm as he passes on the message and what, like one link in a chain, the gospel begins to go viral. In days like our own, it doesn't take long to share news, does it? I remember when uh, my wife was pregnant with our first child, we kept saying to my parents, don't put anything on Facebook, let us tell our friends before we do that. But sure enough, there it was, the post a couple of hours later on my dad's Facebook account, and I was getting texts and emails, what's this, you've got a baby on the way? It doesn't take long, does it, to share big news in in an age of social media. In a time where there are newspapers and, and, and all kinds of things, news station, words, word, word travels quick in the 21st century. But in ancient Israel, important information spread by 
word of mouth. It was slower, slower, and sometimes they got a herald to go into the, the, the town square to lift up his voice and to say what was going on. But I wonder, believers, does verse 41 describe you this evening? Are you like Andrew, a true disciple, so taken up with the gospel that you must share it? Much to our shame. In our generation, such Christians are in short supply. Perhaps in our early Christian years, when the gospel was new to us, we had this overwhelming sense of enthusiasm to reach out to the lost. But as the years go by and and it kind of settles in, that flame begins to flicker. And that zeal, that that urgency for mission, that desire to to go into all the world, to proclaim the gospel to every creature, it begins to shrink. And the great commission becomes the great omission in our life and witness. And yet that's not the case, is it, for this disciple here in John chapter 1. Look at the verbs that are used to describe Andrew's response to the gospel. First, he found his brother Secondly, he told him. And thirdly, he brought him. He found, he told, and he brought. Now, I understand that that we don't all have the same character this evening. That's a really good thing. We don't want a church of, of photocopy Christians. It's one of the great testimonies to our world today that we are a melting pot of different kinds of ages and stages. Men and women, old and young, black and white, rich and poor. We're... we're we're, we're different and, and there's diversity in the body and that's a biblical thing. That's a, a thing to be celebrating. It's one of the things that we look forward to. In glory, it's why I often say that multiculturalism sounds like a heavenly thing to me. Because every tribe and people and tongue and nation will one day be represented in glory and we've got to reflect something of that now, don't we, in our churches and, and in our witness. We've got to go to all the world's and proclaim the gospel to every creature, old and young, and whatever any other category there is. And yet the, the basic task of every true disciple is here, that we witness. As someone said to me not too long ago, if you, if you read the reviews of strangers online, it, it means something. But if it comes from a friend, it, it means more, doesn't it? The closer the recommendation, uh, sorry, the closer the relationship, the stronger the recommendation. And then that's a really great challenge for you and for me. You see, we all have a social network, whether we're we're online or not. We all have uh, people that God has purposely put into your life. And the question is, are you witnessing to them? Are you doing What Andrew does here with Simon, this one-to-one evangelism. He doesn't bring him along to a crowded church service, though I'm sure if he, if there was one, he, he would have done that. But first, he delivers the good news to him one-to-one. He, he personally bears witness to what he has seen before he brings him to Christ. And yes, we may not all be extroverts this evening. 
We may not all feel comfortable to lift up our voices and make a fool of ourselves in sharing the gospel, but we must not isolate ourselves and, and keep the gospel to ourselves. We must not make the message of Jesus Christ our best kept secret, but we have the cure for the worst disease of all, for a life that is ruined not by coronavirus, but by sin. And it has infected every single one of us without distinction. And, and yet we have a vaccine, if you like, for a world that is, is dying in sin, for a life that is ruined by sin. And yes, lockdown has made it tricky. Uh, witnessing in the middle of a global pandemic has not been an easy task, has it? With all the various social restrictions that are upon us, we can kind of excuse ourselves from the responsibility of sharing the gospel. And yet we live at a time where evangelism is still possible. And the question is, for those of you who claim to be disciples of the Lord Jesus Christ, do you find and do you tell and do you bring those that you love and those that are lost to come and see the Saviour? Do you invite them? Come and see for yourself. Investigate. See who this Jesus really is and follow after him. Do you invite them? Like John the Baptist to behold the Lamb of God. Can you just imagine what a, what a tragedy it would have been if Andrew had been too shy, too embarrassed to speak out like so many of us are today. If that was the case, Simon who goes on in verse 42 to meet Jesus and be renamed as Peter, the rock on which Christ would build his church, this man would have lived and died a fisherman. What a wake-up call to each and every one of us this evening. We just don't know the extent to which the Spirit may use our weak and feeble words. We might not all see ourselves as great debate experts, knowing all the answers, able to defend the faith to the nth degree. We might not have all been to a, a Bible college and seminary. And learn the ins and outs of intricate aspects of theological doctrines. But we all have a testimony, don't we? If you're a Christian this evening, you've a, a personal story of how you were once walking this way. But Christ put you onto that narrow path that leads to life. And you know nobody can take your testimony from you. And so are you sharing it? Are you reaching out to the lost with this great message of salvation we have the affirmation of scripture that God doesn't choose the mighty but he chooses the weak he doesn't choose the wise he chooses the foolish to shame the strong and notice that Simon he wasn't persuaded by rhetorical reasoning but by personal testimony and he too believes. He is added to the band of disciples. He becomes himself a true follower of Jesus Christ. And so just in closing, this is, this is not a dramatic conversion story really, is it? It's just a simple statement. We have found the Messiah and the gospel begins to go viral. Who knows where you and I would be today? If it wasn't for this encounter, 
So for the believers, do you see yourselves not only to be a disciple, but also an evangelist? This glorious salvation that has given you an eternal hope, will you not find and tell and bring others to experience it too? I'm so glad that John had mentioned earlier that the work of mission is not just for a select few, but for every true believer. We've all been called into the mission of reaching to the lost with the salvation message of Christ. And for the unconverted, you might have many needs tonight. Many things playing on your minds. Many, many desires, many hopes, many fears. But here you have a God, a saviour who can meet every one of your needs. And so may I challenge you. Will you look to the Lamb? Will you come to Christ? Will you see for yourself? Amen. Let's sing our final hymn together. Sorry that this sermon, uh, or rather this service has been slightly longer than you're used to. But let's sing this song now in worship to God. We all are on one mission. We all are one in call. Let's stand and worship. And the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all forevermore. Amen.